Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Friday, November the 13th. The Conservatives are calling for action to be taken against the now-independent MP Yasmin Ratanzi for employing her sister for years when it was against the parliamentary rules. Michael Barrett joins the show to discuss what that may look like. And Adam Oldfield, our tech expert, talks new Xbox and PlayStation offerings, as well as a new technology that will beam music directly into your head without headphones. It's bizarre. But first... He said that... Cases or the number of cases aren't going to change without any action. Do you believe that there should be some form of greater restrictions put in place in some of the hotspots in in the province? If the, uh, you know, as you you let off, if the goal is to reduce the number of cases and the goal is to reduce the impact on the health system, then yes. That is uh, Dr. Brown, who is um, one of the people... On the Ontario Science Advisory Table, he was uh, part of the province's press conference yesterday where they announced the startling new COVID-19 modeling that showed that the province could reach 6,500 new cases by the middle of December. That's four weeks away. That is four weeks away. We could be saying to you, like at 1030 in the morning, as we always do on this show, the new cases in the province are 6,500. And that is if there are no new measures taken. Now, I understand that Doug Ford, our premier right now, is in meetings. He's trying to figure out if new restrictions should be taken and what they would look like. But here to talk about the modeling, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who's an infectious disease physician. He's been on the show several times. It's good to have you on, Dr. Bogosh. No, thanks for having me back. Were you shocked by the numbers that uh, this new modeling predicts? Yes and no. Yes, we knew that they were going to be higher. Uh, Wait, sorry. No, we knew that they were going to be higher. Yes, you know, 6,000 is a pretty high number. But, you know, when you sort of take a step back and dive deep into what what went into those projections, we're seeing about, you know, three to five percent growth. Uh, And and, you know, if you fast forward that to December, uh, that it's a back of the envelope calculation, but it does tabulate to about 6,500 cases per day. I don't think the province, well, now I'm speculating here, but I don't think the province will let it get to that. I mean, they, they have to certainly pivot the approach now uh, to prevent it from getting to that spot. But if it does get to that place, I mean, we, we'd, be in, uh, we'd be in big trouble, right? We'd be in big yeah. trouble. Would we that, be, would we be looking at a European? Care. Yeah, would we be looking at a European situation where I know they've started to set up those uh, makeshift morgues? Well, it's hard to say, uh, but it would, let's put it this way. It, that wouldn't be outlandish to think uh, we would have, if you've got that degree of community transmission, you, you basically have an uncontrolled epidemic. And, you know, we know that that means that older people, more vulnerable people are getting infected, which we know translates to greater hospitalizations, greater ICU stays, greater deaths. Like, that. we don't have to relearn the same lessons that everyone else is learning like we, we can learn from that and uh and re- we don't have to repeat that pardon me and uh, we can learn from that and, and and not have to relive that now i should say that the uh 6500 cases a day by mid-december that's worst case scenario but i think it's also important to say that we are above the worst case scenario that was predicted last time we did the modeling which was 1,200 new cases a day. Yesterday, we looked at 1,575 new cases. So there, you know, if nothing is done, it's possible 
that we could oh, yeah. go beyond worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I think it's important to have that degree of transparency. Like just like, hey, everyone, this is what we're, this is where we're at. Here's some projections. This is how bad it can be if we don't do anything. And here's some alternative approaches. Here's some alternative outcomes if we take measures to curb community transmission. And it's just, you know, people need to see that. I think it's important. Okay. Well, I'm not sure if we're going to see that from the premier because he looks very nervous about um, dealing with the economy and dealing with, uh, you know, his popularity and dealing with the health um, situation that we've got in front of us. Our health system is is very worried about the uh, number of people in ICU beds. I think if it hits 150, then this is problematic because we're going to have to start looking at closing down those scheduled surgeries, the elective surgeries that uh, we're already, what, 16 months behind on in some cases because of the last closure. So I don't envy our premier and the position he's in. He is walking a tightrope that looks like somebody's on the other end trying to untie while he's trying to get across it. But without further restrictions, can you give us, Dr. Bogosh, the uh, what we're looking at in in your um, you know best estimates, what we're looking at, and can you maybe tell us how we could avoid going towards that scenario? Like, wh- what could we do to avoid that? So I think there's a few points. One is that I think it's important for people to recognize that as when, when case numbers are low, and of course we're not in that situation, but when case numbers are low, like what we saw in the summer, you can take targeted, focused measures to keep those numbers low. Okay, that doesn't necessarily impact everybody uh, to the degree to which we're seeing now. Okay, you know, so. But as case numbers rise and as you've got a growing burden in, of cases in the community, your options to getting this under control become fewer and fewer and fewer. And ultimately, we know that when your healthcare system is at risk of being stretched beyond capacity, then you don't have very many options left. And sadly, something that resembles a lockdown where you're, you know, and I know the term lockdown means different things to different people, but basically closing different sectors of the economy and stay-at-home orders, something that resembles that, is really the last tool you have in your toolbox. You don't do that unless it's the last resort. Um, and, and you know, I'm not saying we're going to have one, but I'm saying that I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're discussing options that might they might need to pull out in the future and i wouldn't be surprised if they're discussing where transmission is occurring in ontario and and i wouldn't be surprised if they're discussing further restrictions on on the economy uh and on sectors of the economy the other thing too is you know you can't have this conversation without discussing the negative impacts of it. We know Mm -hmm. that this is terrible from an economic standpoint we know that this is terrible from a psychological standpoint we know that this disproport the virus itself and the measures to control the virus can disproportionately impact uh, you know, different you know, lower income neighborhoods, neighborhoods with immigrant populations. Like this doesn't affect us all equally, um, and it's it's tough. And, and like you said, I agree with you. Like I don't I don't envy the premier at all. He's in a very tough spot. No matter what decision he makes, it's going to hurt some people. Yesterday. Um 
Andrew Horvath was calling for a circuit breaker lockdown. That's a two-week lockdown. Do you um, think that that's going to be enough? Some experts were saying, well, that's not enough when we've got numbers where they are. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on what you do with it. I think you have to be very open about what this does and what this doesn't do. It can perhaps slow down the rate of new cases per day, but you really need to scramble during that time to get things under control such that when you relieve that, you're actually ready to uh, to deal with the new cases that you're going to be seeing. So, you know, like, what's the point of doing a circuit breaker if you're not rapidly trying to improve your diagnostic testing capacity, your contact tracing, your isolation uh, procedures and supporting people through isolation if they need that. Like if you're not dealing with the, what are the underlying drivers of transmission in the community to begin with? Like how you use that time is, is extremely important. And if it's just going to go right back to what it was before, it, it might not be that useful, but it, it might, as long as you use that time wisely, you can slow transmission for a period of time and then use that time to really uh, mount a, a stronger response to the virus, then I think I think I think it could be helpful. It's just um, you know just by pushing pause for two weeks in and of itself probably won't won't solve all our problems. The group in Ontario that's asking uh, the province to consider extending the winter break for students and staff. Uh, what do you think of that? The idea of you know you go home for Christmas, but then we extend that Christmas break for another two weeks. Is that the appropriate way to handle the possibility of people um, ignoring what what they've been asked to do, staying to their own uh, households when it comes to celebrations? I honestly don't know. I, I'm not sure. I really don't know. It, theoretically, maybe it has some benefits to it, but it, you know, it's there's some really neat ideas, but I. I I just don't know if that will actually pan out to have any meaningful benefit in a real world scenario. It sounds good on paper. I just, I honestly don't know. I don't. Do you? Like, what do you think? <laughs> I'm very curious to hear what others think about scenarios like that. Well, you know, I, I'm, I understand that everybody is, you know, pointing towards the mental health implications of shutting down schools, but my my opinion on schools, to be honest with you, Doctor Bogosh, is I, it uh, just having kids in schools and not learning virtually. I understand why uh, we want that, but but I think that that is sends out a message to people that's confusing because they look at their kids within a bubble that they figure now I'm in that bubble, I'm in a bubble with a whole bunch of people, and then they uh, start to justify why they'd rather see the people they know and be in the bubble with them. And their bubble becomes a bubble of over 50 people. And yeah. I, I, I just, you know, the other day I, I remarked to my husband, I was driving by a, a local grade school that I went to when I was a kid. And I saw, you know, all the kids coming out of the grade school. They all wear masks in grade school. They're whipping off their masks. They're meeting their mom at the corner. There's bunches of kids. They're all standing there without masks, including the parents. And mm -hmm. I thought to myself, look at that mom. Look at that mom. Yeah. She's not wearing a mask. So what's going on at home? So school to me is really confusing. And I think that's where people start to let their guard down and say, oh, come on, kids are in school. We're okay. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, I don't really have a good answer to that or a good solution. I think at the end of the day, too, I think a lot of these policies are going to be good, but clearly not perfect. And I think we're if we, we don't have to look too hard to find some 
contradictory statements between various policies at the provincial and the federal level. And I agree with you. On the other hand, too, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we also know what to do at this point in time. We know as individuals, there are certain things we can take responsibility for. Uh, That's not going to account for all of the, that shouldn't be the pandemic response, but it's, it's certainly a component. It is a piece of the pie and we can put on a mask. We can wash our hands. We can physically distance. We can avoid close crowded settings uh, a lot, but not all the time. Like there are certain things that we do have individual responsibility over that we should really be probably doing better. But of course, responsibility is shared. And we, we do rely on the government and the public health bodies to create sound policy and have appropriate diagnostic capacity and contact tracing. So, you know, it's the kind of thing where I I think I agree with you, but I think there's sort of breakdowns at the various different levels. And that's probably driving the cases upward in addition to this being winter and or fall and winter. And we're just having people in indoor settings where we know the virus is transmitted more readily. I mean, we're asking pack animals to change our behavior. It's uh, it's an it's an absurd situation to be in, and it's a it's a deadly situation to be in if we don't, um, you know, change the way we behave. But it is uh, it's something that you know is it, it's in our DNA, unfortunately. So it's difficult. I get why people are are doing some cheating here and there. Doctor Bogosh, thank you so much for joining me in the show. It's been a pleasure My talking pleasure. again. Have a great day. Monday. A liberal MP decided that she would be uh, stepping down from her position in caucus. Um, She is, her name is Yasmin uh, Ritansi. And uh, she decided she would be stepping down because she learned that CBC News would be publishing a story revealing that she had gone against the rules and employed her sister as her constituency assistant since 2017. Now, originally... You were allowed to have a sibling in that position years ago, but somewhere along the lines, I think it might have been 2012. I might be shaking on the details because, quite frankly, I knew nothing about it till this story broke. Um, it, it changed and everybody was aware of the rules that they had changed. So nepotism would not be allowed. Um, now, uh, Ritansi is um, no longer with the liberals. She is sitting as an independent. And I wondered why no action was being taken against her. Basically, it was being uh, left up to the ethics commissioner to get back and uh, with the message of where he sat on what she did. But like, let's just th- this is not just a mistake that's been made when you ask people to refer to your sister uh, under a different name. Like her name is Zinat. They, she said, hey, if everybody could just call her Jenny from now on, that'd be good. Allegedly, she told employees to call her Jenny. And uh, some of the employees told CBC that she would hide under her desk in some cases or in another room when somebody came into the office who might recognize her. I'm guessing from the position she held before where it was out in the open that they were related. Now, the conservatives have sent a letter to the Speaker of the House of Commons demanding that action be taken and here to talk about what they are hoping for when it comes to those actions. It is um, Michael Barrett, conservative shadow minister for ethics. Welcome to the show, Michael. Good to have you on as always. Thanks for having me. Okay. So what are the conservatives hoping uh, to accomplish with this letter? Well, I I think you laid it out uh, very well. The, um, the gravity of the situation and, uh, and certainly the, um, the details in the, the 
the CBC story uh, are are aggravating factors. You know, uh, having a you know fake name referenced. There's there's allegations that they even had business cards made up with the fake name on it. Uh, the the sister hiding. Um, and to be clear, uh, the rules the, the the rules changed. Um, you know, eight years ago, and at the time, uh, the member uh, wasn't a member. She there was a gap in her. Uh, in her election history, she she lost an election, then was reelected in 15 when the rules were crystal clear to all members. So this wasn't a continuing employment relationship. Um, this uh, this hiring was done um, when it was uh, when it was clear to everyone that you can't hire your family members for what I would say are obvious reasons. I mean, elected officials are there uh, to serve the public, not to line the pockets of their family and friends. So we've referred the matter to the Speaker of the House, who chairs the Board of Internal Economy, and have requested remedial measures be taken. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to presuppose what the board uh, might recommend, and this board is made up of representatives from all recognized parties. And, um, you know, we're talking about tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, that were um, that were paid from, from the Consolidated Revenue Fund, from taxpayers, uh, against the rules, and so the member um, the member uh, may need to uh, may need to rectify that. Yeah, it could be up a little over. I think it was two two hundred thousand dollars worth of salary that would be paid out. And I thought, look at if you were going to uh, take actions to cover up your transgressions, like asking your sister be be referred to as a different name allegedly uh, by people that work in the office, the odds are very low that you are going to say, "Guess what? Here's your top salary that you could make." I'm gonna. We're just going to not give you the top salary. You're going to have to prove your worth. You're just probably going to go whole hog if you're already going to break those rules. The rules are clear. And by taking actions to cover up her transgressions, uh, she's demonstrated an ongoing consciousness of guilt, in my opinion. So I have to play a little clip that was on the CBC's website. Apparently, this was part of a Zoom call. Can you set this up for us? She was on a Zoom call and uh, Ritansi had thought that she had muted her um her Zoom call, and we've learned that this is problematic when it comes to people's careers as they, uh, you know, move forward in the pandemic. So many terrible things have happened when people think they're muted and they're not. Uh, but she wasn't muted. Can do, do you know what I'm talking about? Could you set it up? No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And one of one of my colleagues, Brad Redekop, was was speaking at the time, and uh, Miss uh, Miss Ritanzi is the chair of that committee, and so. Um, MP Redekop had the floor, he started speaking, and then the, what happens with Zoom, as we all know, once you start speaking, the camera cuts to whoever spoke most recently. So, the, right. so, so, it's, so it comes her video, and she's, she's talking, and starts talking unaware that she's being broadcast and recorded in Hansford, uh, the permanent record of the House of Commons, talking about who her sister actually is. Are you going to play the clip? I have the clip. It's right here. So implement Hi, regulations. listen. Zinat is my adopted sister, uh, actually. Oh, my God. sorry. <laughs> and, and, and the look and the look on um, uh, MP Ritanzi's face when she realizes that she's just broadcast this detail um, in, into the committee record uh, was just um, she was. It was she, SCTV worthy. 
That's what I thought of. Yeah. This is like a, a Saturday Night Live sketch. This is unbelievable. And who cares if it's her adopted sister or her um, her sister who is related genetically to her? It doesn't make a difference. Sister is a sister. It's against the rules. Now, let me ask you this. Um, the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc, who's a member of the Board of the Eternal Economy, uh, that board governs the administration of finances of the House of Commons, said that the board, uh, if the board had known of the inappropriate hiring, the board would have obviously put an end to it. So I'm curious, if they had the ability to intervene, are their powers retroactive? I mean, can they punish this flagrant abuse of taxpayers' money? Or is a stern frowning about all we're going to expect here? Uh, the, the board can absolutely um, garnish a member's wages uh, or order repayment for uh, ineligible expenses. And that's clear to all of us. We know the uh, the budget restrictions that we have, um, and we also know what are eligible and what aren't eligible expenses. And if you incur ineligible expenses, the rules are very clear. You pay them back. And so the, um, the decision has to be made by the board to order that garnishment or to, to order the repayment. Uh, but the rules are the rules are crystal clear, just as clear as you can't hire your sister, adopted or biological. Um, you if you spend money that uh, you weren't authorized to, you can be asked to pay it back. So now it's up to that board to have uh, to have the wherewithal uh, to protect the taxpayer dime and uh, and the rules and uh, and, you know, uh, and have some uh, uh, remedial measures taken and uh, demonstrate to other members. The, the rules are there for a reason. Well, we'll see where your request goes, and I want to thank you for your time. Have yourself a, a good weekend. Yeah, you as well. Thanks for the time. So, you know, Chris and I work on this show together, and we spend countless hours looking for things that we think might interest you. Yesterday, Chris said to me, have you heard about this new audio technology called sound beaming? And I said, no. And he said, well, it, it beams sound directly into a listener's head without the need for headphones. And I was like, come on, Chris, give me a break. What is this? He said, no, Alan Cross was talking about this could be the future of uh, audio years ago, I recall. Um, so we invited not Alan, but Adam Oldfield, our 640 Toronto tech expert on the show. Adam, has this been on your radar? Because it was on Alan Cross's radar. Maybe he was just theorizing on where we'd go as far as audio was concerned. But sound beaming, like beaming sound directly into a head without headphones. Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about the five senses of a human, this is where technology is leading. Sound beaming, I mean, sound beamer 1.0, as they're referring to this prototype, uh, is is not anything new. It's been in the works for the last couple of years. Uh, and the whole vision behind it is, yeah, we all walk around with buds in our ears or headphones or beats, whatever the style is. And technology is allowing for the same ability that we see facial recognition opening your uh, biometric information on your computer, very similar is your senses in here, hearing. So sound beaming, it just uses very similar uh, elements of which facial technology does, and it identifies with the person. Um, specifically, uh, they're, they're, think of it as taking a, a 3D version of the, of the room. It gets kind of a schematic of you know what your ears look like, and then it's able to bounce and use the sound properly to give only uh, the, the individuals to be able to hear a, a video game, maybe music, uh, sounds of puppy dogs barking in the background, whatever that is, uh, capable of being able to identify and specifically get that sound only to that person.
Okay, here are the things that I'm thinking when I hear you talk about this, and I'm not alone. So basically, this would uh, negate the need to, and all of us have been here before, somebody's talking to us, we have to pull out our headphone and go, or earphone and go, what? It, yeah. You would be able to have that person talk to you, and you would still hear the music, sort of like you're all listening to it in the room, and it's at a reasonable level. Uh, secondly, how the heck can you control how sound waves work? I mean, we it, it seems absurd to me. I can't compute. <laughs> well, it, it's kind of the same way that, you know, I, I know that the sound beaming is still a little hard to understand in the in the prospects of how they're doing it. But it uses uh, similar to like, a you know, a panoramic photo uh, of sort of a camera kind of visioning and doing sort of a circumference of an area. Um, you know, it, it's not 100 percent perfect. Now, I haven't experienced the sound beaming of the product that just came out that claims it's accurate to the degree of which an individual can hear specifically only the sounds coming from the device. Now, on top of that, I know Elon Musk is very much with Neuralink believing in the same aspects of it. So uh, what Elon Musk is coming out with in the, in the next year with Neuralink is a microchip, which I think we spoke about before, and it sort of specifically only sends sound signals to that person. So this is still capable of being heard and maybe a muffled sound, kind of like you hear a sound in the background for others in the room, but for you specifically would be able to link with that device and have it uh, send that signal directly to you as a person signed in uh, linking your body to uh, the sound device. Think of it as your ears are linked with the specific sound speaker. And it's using that uh, technology and, and again, visualizing this 3D aspect of a room. It, it identifies Kelly sitting in, in that chair. Uh, this is where Kelly's ears are. So if Kelly turns her head or Kelly kind of gets up and walks, it's kind of following you. It's kind of keeping that mimic of send the sound signals specifically in that direction. So it, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like I said, it's like a camera, except it's sound directly beaming to you directly, and it doesn't impact anybody else in the room. I don't know what this says about my mood, but I'm thinking this is perfect if you have some nefarious designs on people and you want to drive them crazy. Where's that sound coming from? It's in my head. It's like it's... To me, it is so science fiction. I, I can't even wrap my head around this. What if, here's a question for you. So there, the possibility with this sound beaming technology is there are different uh, audio um, ultrasonic waves, uh, you know, going to different people's ears. What if we pass and the beams cross? Like what happens if the beams cross? There is still a margin of error in there. And yes, you're right. I mean, if you kind of stood behind a, a brick wall, similar to Bluetooth, it's not going to send a signal to you. It's not chasing you around corners or anything like that. Or someone stepping in and going, wait a minute, I didn't hear that from before. Uh, again, I can't speak specifically to this unit directly. Uh, yeah. But from what I've seen and what I understand of the sound beaming technology, this is as close as it gets without putting a microchip in your ear and being able to link it directly to the device. So if it is capable of doing that and you're within the room, and I'm sure it's very much like Bluetooth, it's going to be so many feet away from the device sending the, uh, the signal. You won't be able to be in your basement and have the device on in your living room and be able to hear it. Uh, you're going to need to be within a visual vicinity of the device. So, but yes, it's quite possible. I mean, knowing that a device knows where to steer the sound, sound is nothing but a signal bouncing 
uh, and it can focus that sound uh, primarily to the direction of the user that's watching or in in uh, frontal contact of it. Well, the, the future is not now with this sound beamer, but it should be ready uh, for uh, commercial use by Christmas 2021. I still, I'm going to wait and see. I do not fully, uh, I'm not going to fully get invested in this or fully embrace it yet. But let's talk about very quickly, if we could, before we run out of time, Microsoft Xbox Series X and Sony PlayStation 5 hit stores this week. Uh, I believe it was Xbox, Microsoft that had to ask their uh, purchasers to please stop vaping into the Xbox because they were looking for a cool image to put up on Instagram with it kind of smoking. Um, but, But who has the better offering here? Oh, man, you're asking me a million dollar question. I guarantee you there's a 50-50 of everyone listening right now that says he better pick my game console. Uh, All I can tell you is that they are both amazing, both phenomenal in regards to what they're capable of doing. Uh, I do, and I speak only from a professional perspective, I do know that the elements of what Microsoft is linking or moving towards in the future is going to be very robust to integrate with its other systems, meaning your mobile devices, uh, speaking of your iPhones, your iPads, uh, other connections or other controllers, Microsoft has a real big vision moving towards using the gaming console into the operate or into the software that exists on other platforms. PlayStation obviously is very, very robust, comes with some of the most amazing technology when it comes to visual aspect and both of them are going to be leaping into the virtual reality world, which is going to, I believe, uh, step up the game when it comes to leaving reality and jumping into a virtual game environment. Both of them are going to be absolutely mind-blowing when it comes to the future of what to experience with gaming. I wish you were more excited about, you know, the future of gaming. <laughs> I try to calm Adam, myself down. <laughs> it's always a pleasure having you on the show. You enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Kelly. You too. Take care. Cheers. Well, thanks for tuning into the podcast. Always a pleasure to have you along. Don't forget to tell your friends about it and subscribe wherever you download your podcast to The Kelly Cotrera Show. Uh, We'll be back Monday between 9 and noon live on 640 Toronto. Hopefully you can join us then.